0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Cabinet Subcommittee has tonight been discussing the government's climate action plan. Minister for Agriculture Charlie McConalogue and Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy will debate... Also tonight, Nefert warns the public to dial back their social contacts.
2: This is the highest level of socialization, at least as measured by that, that we've seen in, in, in the entire pandemic.
1: And we will be live to Australia to hear about the incredible story of a four-year-old found alive after 18 days.
2: The family liaison officer um, called uh, Claire's parents and said, we've got someone here that wants to speak to you. And it was, um, you know, a wonderful feeling to be able to, to make that call.
1: We want to hear what you think about these stories. Get in touch on Twitter, on our hashtag, TonightVMTV. Week, you've been hearing stark warnings from world leaders that the climate crisis is here and we need to act. Well, tomorrow, we'll hear exactly what action... Ireland will take. The Climate Action Plan we will go to Cabinet and we'll see how the government plans to pay for the changes and how it will affect our everyday lives. Well, let's discuss all this. I'm joined by Minister for Agriculture Charlie McConlogue and Sinn Féin spokesperson for Agriculture, Matt Carthy. You're both very welcome along to the programme tonight. Minister, I want to start with you. There's been so much build-up around this plan. It's going before Cabinet tomorrow, as we've said. We're hearing tonight that agriculture will have to make a cut of emissions of between 22% and 30% in the next decade. Is that so?
3: Well, obviously, the Climate Action Plan will be finally signed off at Cabinet tomorrow. We had a Cabinet subcommittee this evening which finished this work um, for now in relation to the Climate Action Plan. And that's the culmination of many, many months of uh, serious work across government departments, obviously following through on the very strong ambition uh, to deliver... Uh, emissions reduction over the next 10 years which is clear in the program for government of delivering 51% which is needed not just by Ireland but by countries right across the world so my objective in relation to all of the engagement I've had over the course of this process to be ensure is, is to ensure that we have a sectoral target for agriculture which allows it to deliver and play its role uh, in terms of emissions reduction but really importantly allows farmers to continue to do what they do really well and uh, exceptionally well by international standards which is produce nutritious healthy safe okay. food in a very sustainable Sustainable manner.
1: And that cut up between 22 and 30%, is, is that what we're likely well, to see over li- the next decade? Well, listen,
3: t- tomorrow morning, whenever the climate action plan is signed off by government and announced tomorrow, it will be clear what the, the You'll confirm parties it. Parties are. It will be clear, obviously, once it's agreed by, by Cabinet, but I am confident, as I say, Um, Claire, that the target we have will be one which will support farmers to continue to produce the meat protein and the milk protein, which we do really, really well. And it's not said often enough, what a sustainable agricultural model, family farm based we have in Ireland. But of course, like every sector of the economy, where we can, it's important that we work to reduce our emissions further. And that will be the objective over the next number of
1: years. Is it going to be a range, you know, when we're hearing about these sectoral targets, we're hearing, if if we're hearing rightly, between 22 and 30%, There isn't going to be a clear figure, or will there be more clarity? Will it be pinned down as a certain percentage? And that is the target we really have to meet.
3: So there will be ranges involved, um, and obviously alongside that, then clear measures in terms of how we can actually go about making those reductions.
1: Um, You've said that agriculture will have a target proportionate to what it can deliver. So does that mean, yes, we're going to impose targets, but we're not going to push it?
3: No, we are going to push it. Um, We're going to do the very best we possibly can uh, to reduce the emissions footprint of how we produce food. Um, and that's something farmers are up for doing and it's something that they will be supported in doing as well. So, for example, through the new common agricultural policy, which um, I'm currently putting together our national plan for and consulting with farmers right across the country, we're investing an extra 1 billion euro or a 50% increase of national funding into that cap plan to support farmers in that. So, listen, it's important we continue to produce the food, but every effort we can make to reduce the emissions footprint of it uh, is something that we, we have to strive to do and which oh, we will do.
1: OK. One of the things um, Micheál Martin was saying on a global stage yesterday, he was lauding this deal between the EU and the US about cutting methane emissions by 30%. And now we're hearing, for Ireland, it's going to be 10%. Do you think 10% is enough, McCarthy?
0: Well, I think what we've seen this week um, is uh, reiteration. The government is very good at rhetoric, very good at producing plans, very good at setting targets, not so good at actually meeting targets. In fact, no Irish government has ever reached a climate target that it has, it has set. Um, so I do think it's important that um, not only we have a plan this week, we support the fact that there will be sectoral targets, but we think it's really important that we actually delve in at a very early stage in terms of yeah. what that will actually mean for individual farmers. So um, on the methane question, for, for example, it makes absolutely no sense to cut methane by, for example, as has often been suggested in the past, you know, reducing the number of suckler farmers in the, or suckler um, cows in the west of Ireland if on the other hand we're supporting a Mercosur trade deal that will see the importation of hundreds of thousands of tons okay. of Brazilian beef for example which is much more damaging
1: um, to the to the environment. But we will so- get on to that but just on that and um, because there has been criticism that Micheál Martin stood up on a global stage and said you know this 30% cut this is what we have to do we're in a climate emergency it has to happen and back home It's 10%. Should it be more than that? I think it's important that we have realisable targets
0: and that we recognise that there is a reason why we need to have global targets for things like methane, because there are different types. For example, when we're talking about um, um, natural um, methane that comes from cows, um, not all cows produce the same level of methane. So it's very different from uh, a suckler cow, for example, to a factory controlled feedlot cow,
1: to a dairy cow, to a cow
0: coming from a
1: factory controlled feedlot in Brazil. We we do know that 90% of methane emissions come from the agriculture sector. Of course, yes. So therefore, that 10% figure that's being touted isn't enough?
0: I think um, it will be difficult to reach that at an Irish level. I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think what's crucially important, and this gets lost in the debate, I have to say, at an Irish level, is that we have a really good, sustainable family farm model. That is not the model that has been prioritised by um, by Charlie and previous um, ministers for agriculture. In fact, what we've seen over the past um, 20 years has been an intensification, a drive towards um, um, moving people away from that sustainability sustainable model of agriculture to an unsustainable model of agriculture and what we should be doing is actually supporting family farms and what Charlie failed to mention when he talked about the additional money that the Irish government will be putting in to the cap um, budget next time is that that is actually making up money that will be lost through EU funding because he negotiated such a really bad um, EU budget. So, in effect, Irish farmers will be receiving less support at a time that they'll be asked to do more and I think that's really disappointing.
1: I I want to ask you about that. Look, it's a criticism that's laid at government. You're asking for an an awful lot, yet this state has supported and aided a huge growth in the area of production Um, over recent decades and recent years, and now you're looking for a complete U-turn from the sector?
3: Uh, No, we're not looking for a U-turn, Claire. But listen, first of all, I I find it ironic to hear Sinn Féin and Matt talk about rhetoric, um, uh, whenever they don't have any clear policies in this themselves and it's very clear when you true. listen to different uh, spokespersons in their parties the, the various divergences there are within their policy um, and listen the key objective you're the minister the, the, the Charlie key, we don't the, know what your the, policy key, the is. key objective of, of, of uh, myself in government as minister and my government colleagues is to support family farms and that's Absolutely, what we're about. I'd like to hear. But nothing you've done. I'd like to hear hear Matt actually identify who these these farmers are who are not family farmers, because our our, our model of farming right across the country is very much family farm based. But listen, and in relation to the um, in relation to the cap program, for example, Claire, which we are introducing, the outgoing seven-year cap program had national funding of 1.9 billion euro, Um, thanks to the support of my ministerial colleague, Minister Michael McGrath. That will be 2.9 billion euro this time around. Well, one, one billion euro extra But that doesn't make up for the money that you lost through your bad negotiation and, and, in relation no, to the and, European and, Union and, budget. And, and again, this is crucially again important. you're wrong on that, Matt, This because, is a crucially no, important
0: you're... point, because Charlie and his government in the Programme for Government lauded the big flagship agriculture policy was a separate 1.5 billion euro for an agri environmental scheme that would be outside of the CAP pro- process. In fact, what they did last week was actually confirm that that would actually form part of the cap um, the, the cap budget. So what we've seen in effect is an EU budget where Ireland would be paying more money in but getting less money back in EU budget. The Irish taxpayer in turn paying additional money into the cap budget and in turn then we have an, um, carbon taxes that have been taken off so farmers actually used to make up the shortfall um, from one to the other. So the real losers in all yeah, of this are yeah, family because, farmers.
3: Because that's wrong on both fronts. Uh, in relation to the EU funding, the overall um, cap Funding. Ireland was central to reversing a proposed cut in cap funding. The Taoiseach fought very hard for this at European level to ensure that it would be narrowly increased. But there's undoubtedly been pressure on the overall European cap budget over the last couple, but we were central to cap actually re- cap re- reversing that. The portion that. of, of the budget the portion of the cap to the really is one. reduced from 37 oh, no, Matt, to 30%. 30 yes, That's because, the fact. Let's deal in facts. So, in and, and, and relation to the, um, the funding for the agri environmental scheme, again, we were absolutely clear in relation to uh, funding that that was always going to be part of the cap program, Matt. No. Can okay. I just likewise, read from we, the Programme for Government? It said this funding have, will be additional
0: have, to funding from the Common Agriculture and Policy. And that's the page from the Programme for it, Government. Which it so is. it's not. No, it's part of It's part of the three-card trick that you're playing on, on family farmers, where you're actually taking no, money out of their pocket through carbon taxes, playing and, playing and you're using cards, that okay. funding the, 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 to make the, the, up for I a shortfall in relation to your The only one playing a three-card
3: trick here is, Matt, by misrepresenting facts, because that's not the case, Matt. And the capital is very, very strong. Gentlemen, and a very can very we return, please? Fund. And if I can just make this point, Matt's, Matt's Two, policy briefly. is to do away with the carbon tax altogether, which would leave a black hole no, in the wouldn't. cap and many it other wouldn't. things. Our policy, policy is not to fun- penalise uh, ordinary okay. okay. workers' I families or pay agriculture
1: Matt, do, do you want to talk about reality. this climate action plan? I would love to, Claire. Okay, yes. yeah, I'd like to too. So, look on this and stabilising the national herd, because that's what the conversation has turned to. Because the whole. The whole meaning around this is cutting emissions, especially from the the agriculture sector. We know we have to do this. The the Taoiseach's language around this has sort of been around stabilising. What does that mean?
3: Well, I, and I think this is the wrong conversation, first of all. because Why? Well, because what we're, we're not looking to reduce the amount of food that we produce in the country. That's not what we want to do. What we want to reduce is the emissions footprint of how we produce it, to lower our emissions, not our food production. And that's, how do you do that? Well, there's, that's what the Climate Action Plan will outline. And there, there, are many, there are many options as to how we can do that. So, for example, in relation to how we, uh, in terms of reducing nitrous oxide, which is 30% of what agricultural emissions are, very very significant capacity there to in terms of how we manage grassland, in terms of we introduce clover, to reduce our overall emissions. And likewise in relation to how we can reduce methane in the time ahead, real capacity there in terms of new breeding techniques, in terms of feed in terms of feed additives and and also in terms of the new
1: breeding techniques. Is that around genetics?
3: yeah, well, so, so for example, I mean, and everybody will be very well over the years of how you had cows which produced different levels of, levels of milk, for example, and through breeding the, their their productivity was increased over, or, or, by good breeding. And the research at the moment, for example, is showing how two animals which are exactly the same in terms of size, breed, and and uh, and and production and beef production can have different levels of methane output. And we're we're significantly okay. investing in terms of research but, around that but it's good. to try and ensure that that actually can be programmed into genetic breeding over the period ahead so, the growth... so there's significant opportunity here to reduce the emissions of how we produce that food while actually ensuring we do what we do really well and support farmers in doing what we do really okay. well which is produce really good food for the national and then, market and uh, indeed can for i ask you just going
1: back well. to that that 10 percent um on methane emissions yeah. when globally we've yes. promised 30 percent why are we not being more ambitious there well, because there were big words from the Taoiseach, and, uh, you know on a global stage uh, this absolutely week.
3: and and, and we- it
1: seems that can these words turn into action Absolutely. what's going to come out of this plan. And
3: and, and every one of those words was meant and we are very serious about it as well. So uh, that was an agreement signed between the EU and the US to reduce methane emissions, overall methane emissions in both the EU and US between now and 2030 by 30%. At EU level, half of our methane is non-agricultural based, which comes from energy, it comes from landfill, for example, uh, while half of it is, 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 is biogenic methane. The EU in terms of its own targets to how, we, how it uh, in its Fit for 55 package, which is about reducing EU-wide emissions overall by 55%, is going to tackle methane by reducing the non-agricultural methane by 50% and the biogenic methane at EU level by 10%. But this is all so I
1: know. People that's will be listening so, so, but it's really important
3: it's, because that's that's actually that is actually how the 30% reduction is going to be achieved, Claire. Could we and do I, more? Could we do more in, than the 10%? And, and in Ireland, in Ireland, almost all of our methane emissions are biogenic methane. So, uh, and by delivering on a 10% reduction, for example, in our national biogenic methane, we will be contributing and playing our part in relation to meeting that 30% percent eu we do more? EU-wide. We will do as much as we possibly can um, uh, and while producing the food that we do. Okay. Um, and in doing so, um, uh, we, we, you know, I, I, we will back farming in terms of from, from an income point of view and in terms of a food point okay. of view, but also in terms of an emissions point and
1: of view. Now, McCarthy, I just want to come to you on where Sinn Féin stands on climate action. Because, I mean, even at Mary Lou McDonald's or their speech, it was way down there in terms of where it was coming in the speech and the sense of where it is in terms of priorities for Sinn Féin. Is there division within the party about what what you'd like to see regarding plans?
0: No, absolutely not. No, we support the objectives, but what we want to do is actually meet the objectives. So rather than a piecemeal um, set of measures that are actually about targeting individuals who in most cases have little alternatives, but to, for example, drive their cars to work or um, to heat their homes with their traditional method, we want to tackle the sources of <coughs> pollutions and, and, and emissions. that so is a I source
1: of pollution. It's not, cars are a source of pollution.
0: But not when people have no alternatives. So we've seen, for example, example, if we are serious about actually reaching our climate targets, then we have to be serious to recognise that it takes state intervention. The state has to lead. If we were to take the government's approach... Would that be, if you now, allow me to finish, Claire. Yeah. If, we were, if we were to take the government's approach um, on climate to, for example, the COVID emergency, what the government would have essentially done is introduce a vaccine tax before the vaccinations were actually available. So rather than do, taking that approach, which is what they're doing on climate, which is penalising people who have no choice, we want to actually put in place the infrastructure in relation to um, public transport in relation okay. to retrofitting in relation to actually real measures that can actually b- benefit um, communities and we don't want to penalise okay. and we make no apologies for they? not penalising ordinary workers and families who are already stretched to the pillow their collar. Okay. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, well,
3: like, I think uh, if you listen to Matt you'll see that like many other aspects of Sinn Féin policy that there's no coherence to their climate change policy and they don't really have one. The one coherent thing that holds Sinn Féin policy together is that if somebody's in favour of something, they'll promote it. If, if people are against something, they'll oppose it. Other than that, there's very little coherence to any of your, any of your um, uh, policies. And I've, been, I've seen that in relation to their policy in terms of climate as well, because while Matt talks the way he does tonight, uh, it, when you listen to other spokespersons in the party, they're, they're, they're putting forward a very, very different policy. Okay. Um, what the government is doing, and what's really important, is we put the targets in legislation, um, and we're actually coming forward now with a very, very comprehensive plan tomorrow in relation to how across it's all very sectors of the come economy, back on, on that every care. sector will yeah. contribute because and I'll deliver to that objective taxes. of reducing it, it, emissions it, it over the It is a
1: criticism that we've heard from Sinn Féin um, <clears> and from other opposition parties that at the moment, cost of living is really high, cost of fuel is really high, and then people have these carbon taxes lumped on top of everything else, and the alternatives aren't there.
3: So, I mean, the, the carbon tax has been in place now for a number of years. So, I mean, the Sinn Féin approach to that hasn't coincided with the the increase in in, in fuel costs that we've seen in the last few months. It has been there actually when fuel costs were very low as well. What the carbon tax is about is actually giving a signal to the market and to, to all in the economy in relation to the direction of travel here to ensure that we actually can get investment into the alternatives. And in terms of the. It's to pay, the, it's yeah, to
1: pay for it's, the it's, free it's, public transport it's to, it's to, it's to and the initiatives. Promote,
3: it's to promote the move away from fossil Claire, fuels. Here's the tor- difficult alternatives. Charlie there, there is a reality this year in relation to the impact of fuel costs, for example, on families, and that is something we are supporting and did support in the budget through increases, for example, in fuel supports.
0: Charlie's from County Donegal. As he said, the carbon tax has been in place for over 10 years. There's no additional public transport over the past 10 years in Donegal. There's been no measures to support your constituents who are at the pin of their collar and every single year. In fact, as I said earlier on, the government have failed to reach any... uh, Successive governments have failed to reach any climate target or objective that they've set. In fact, the only one that they have met is the annual increase in the carbon taxes. So time and time again, we have a situation where ordinary workers and families um, are penalised. A hundred companies globally are responsible for 71% yeah. of global emissions. There's not one measure that Charlie could point to that his again, government have taken against again, companies like that. But there's a, a list the length of your arm again, of measures that have been taken against ordinary workers and families who aren't again, responsible I mean, for again, the again, climate crisis.
3: A, should Sinn Féin are for everything that people might be in favour of, they're against everything people we've might be against. we set out in very clear and, no and concise whatsoever. terms, and you know
0: this because I engage with you on all aspects no, no of no policy. We bring whatsoever. forward no, no proposals. proposals. What you do, Charlie, ask instead, not. is actually set out yeah, it's about the
1: wind farms bill that yeah. you were due to bring before um, the doll this week. It was withdrawn. Why? Because it was out of date. Essentially,
0: the bill was written in 2014 and remained and had been resubmitted on the order paper. Um, Since then, the the premise of the bill is actually really important. Wind energy should be a really positive part of the Irish response to the climate uh, emergency. No, we didn't. What we wanted to ensure was that the voices of communities are heard. Unfortunately, what we have in this state is the government essentially said we want to see lots of wind energy, but then they outsourced it to private companies. So the only criteria that determines where wind farms are actually situated is the availability of land to those private companies, as opposed to what we have seen in countries where they have successfully um, rolled out wind energy to a greater extent where you have community engagement, but also community ownership. And that's the type of model we want to see.
1: I briefly want to get the minister on that again. That's a criticism that there's a lot of private interests involved in reaching our climate targets. Would you agree that there needs to be more state intervention state projects
3: well i think that there's there's very significant state support right across the board but also i think it makes total sense that we actually direct private investment towards actually towards renewable energy as well um that makes that makes a lot of sense and one of those areas is actually the development of offshore energy because it has massive potential in the years ahead to transform how we produce energy nationally and indeed for us to become a next. Know, we're going to speed net. that up we, we are, and indeed the legislation to provide the platform for that is making its way through the doll at the moment and will be in place by the end of the, this year to ensure that that investment can happen in well, the we're years talking ahead. about farmers and, and, the, think-
0: and the climate it is impossible to miss. The elephant in the room, which is the potential of lots of farmers to contribute through renewable energy. Okay, sources and Claire, and connect to the grid. And this point. government are not providing okay, on on that. Basis point, very briefly. Which they can do so, so very listen, briefly. I,
3: I increased, for example, in the recent budget, I'd introduced a 60% grant for solar panels on farms. But they can't and connect to the grid. The, and that will happen. Okay. And okay. By, uh, that's that's that will be in the be in the In the next in the plan. It is, And actually, it'll be, in, it'll be implemented in the next, uh, by, by the start of next year. Okay. So that farmers will be able to make that contribution, which they are all very, so many are interested in doing.
1: Charlie McConneloke and McCarthy will be staying with us. Um, coming up after the break, we'll be discussing Neffert's latest advice on socializing amid a rise in COVID cases. So stay with us.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Welcome back. COVID cases are remaining stubbornly high. They were once again over 3,000 today and Neffert had some stark advice to those out socialising over the next few weekends. It may be time to dial it back.
4: There is no doubt in my mind or in IMAG's mind that this is primarily driven by progressive increases in effective social contact. We are in the territory now saying to people... Uh, you you need to cut your social contacts. Uh, If you are planning to see 15, 20 people uh, next week, it would be much better to plan to see 8, 9, 10.
1: Well, still with me in studio are Charlie mcconnell and Matt Carthy, and I'm joined by Professor Jack Lambert from the UCD School of Medicine. And, Jack, when you hear what uh, Professor Nolan had to say today, ration your activities, what do you think of that?
4: Well, I think... we were promised that the country would open up as soon as we get ninety percent vaccination, and everything would open up at the end of October. And I think that was, I think, hanging your hat on vaccines was, was a big mistake because all the other COVID prevention strategies that we haven't been doing actually over the autumn, you know, social distancing, masks, hand washing in the schools, and now with the you know discos open and, and this and that. The, the, the message has, has been one of vaccines will open up in November. And the numbers have been increasing in schools since September and October. The cases have been increasing in people who, who are vaccinated, whose vaccines were waning, you know, the antibodies were waning. So, so I, think, um, I, I think the message that, that we need to scale back is, is, is not the right message. That, that the message we, is we need to ramp up our COVID prevention
1: now, that has been a very strong message on our behaviour and what we should be doing around hand-washing and mask-wearing, social distancing. All of that is something that they've really been saying over the past few uh, few weeks, in fact, since these figures started going higher and higher. So would you accept that they're calling for this behavioural change? That's that's an effort. That's public health officials really trying to stem those figures that we're seeing, those infection rates. Well,
4: well, well like I said, I think that the, the way to keep the... Why did the infection rate go up, I guess, is, is, is one of the issues. As Why I think, do you think it did? Well, I think in September, when the schools opened, the schools were not prepared. And the numbers were sky high in schools in September and October. And, and kids transmit COVID. And if you look at the numbers then um, in the schools in September, October, they just announced recently, the numbers are increasing in kids. But the numbers were already mm. sky high in September. 30, if you look at the, I look at the, every day, I look at the numbers of cases reported by the government and it was 30, 30% of all cases in September were children. Um, and now we're down to 20% of cases in children. The numbers are going up in adults and older adults. Mm. So, so we, we knew this back in September that kids were a source of transmission, but we didn't really, I think we didn't really do anything we were so focused well, on keeping the schools What should have been open. done?
1: Are you saying that the, the schools should have remained closed? What, no, I, what, what, I, I, what action I, should have been taken to prevent
4: Well, I think this? the schools should be better prepared when they opened. We had June, July, August, September. I think a lot of the schools are antiquated. They don't have good ventilation. What They, they talked about having CO2 monitors for the schools, but most of the schools didn't have CO2 monitors till the end of September, a month into the schools okay. being opening. So I just think we keep on looking back and saying, we, we did it wrong, we keep on reacting to numbers. I think we have to proactively plan mm. for six months ahead, not react to increasing numbers. We need to th- think about what we can do proactively to okay. keep numbers down.
1: Minister, what we heard today was reactive, uh, reacting to those figures, but in fact, not planning for the fact that they could happen if mitigation measures aren't put in place, which is what happened.
3: Well, I, I think we have been, um, you know, Organized and planned as best we possibly could right through the so? process. I think so, yeah. What um, about schools? I mean, they wouldn't say that in well, the schools. I, I and, and I mean I would I would dispute with Jack. I mean I think that the the everyone in society can transmit this, transmit this virus, not just children, not just children. Um thankfully although
1: they are unvaccinated yes, and they're so, in so classes of thirty. Yeah, so th- in, thankfully in, in, th- in schools that are In some schools that are largely unventilated and relying on open windows. And and
3: listen, schools have gone to massive effort uh, in terms of the um, operations they have in place and the precautions they have in place to do all they possibly can within the setting that they have to try and minimise the risk of transmission. Um, But right across society, and like it's not just the schools went back in September, uh, from the start of September we started to reopen society because of the fact that we got to where we were with the vaccination the vaccination rollout that thankfully even though we are seeing numbers in the last couple of days similar to what they were in last january thankfully that um that the, the vaccination bank and that 93 percent vaccination rate is acts as acting as a defense in relation to very okay. serious illness uh, and not, not being uh being very different now to what it would have been uh, at the start of this year okay um, but it does the, that personal responsibility piece and everybody keeping their guard up is really, really important, as important I, as ever now, in terms of, and I think, in terms of the advice from NEFET, taking, having regard to that, but also the points Jack made in relation to but, mask wearing, distancing, yeah, sh- hand washing, surely, that's still as, as important I, Minister, as ever. surely
1: with regard to the messaging around, like limiting your social contacts, we've opened everything up, mm-hmm. and that was done with, with the, the recommendation of NEFET, that, and, and it was said, it was, you know, the vaccination programme is there, and, we're going to reopen, And now you're telling everyone to stay at home again? No,
3: they're they're not telling everyone to stay at home. They're telling everyone to be moderate in in what they do. Um, And I think, you know, it it is at a different stage now where we are living with COVID because of the fact that the the vaccinations are giving that protection. And it was that backdrop that actually led to the decision to gradually reopen society. But there's no doubt that the risk hasn't gone away. And there's also no doubt that this virus has been really hard to predict at so many different points in time okay. um, and it's probably as likely to continue as, to be hard to predict as well.
1: Uh, McCarthy, it's true that it is hard to predict um, this virus uh, and where it's going um, but what, what would you make of, of that argument from at now that we should limit our social contacts?
0: Yeah, I, I have to say the message is, is getting a little bit confusing. And I think what we've seen throughout this um, process is that when the message is confu- um, c- confusing, that, that um, creates, I suppose, um, anxiety, but also f- um, frustration, because I suppose the, the deal was people get vaccinated, which they did in huge numbers um, um, very substantial per- percentage, the largest in Europe. In fact, w- society gets back to a, a, a new normal, which was the phrase. The difficulty was, and Charlie's right on this, You know, the vaccine is the great defence. It is the big difference between now and last January. But there's another defence that, I, just for the life of me, I don't understand why we're not using, and that's the um, mass use of antigen testing. We had debates this time last year in relation to um, an, antigen testing. Eventually, at the earlier part of this year, the government said that they would um, they, they would study whether or not it, they okay. would form part. The Taoiseach... Said when we talked about reopening that he was a big fan of antigen testing. I'd hate to see if he wasn't a fan because we don't actually have it okay. be rolled out. For those people who are um, vaccinated, um, non symptomatic people, if they want to get an antigen test, they are. Have to wait for it in the post, as opposed to something simple, putting in place a mechanism where people can go to their pharmacy, for example. I just don't understand why that's not being used. Jack
1: Lambert, much has been made around antigen testing. It's in widespread use across other European countries and uh, uh, and other countries. Do you think that we are not using them to to their best potential here, and that that would help stem those virus numbers?
4: Well, I think if you roll back two months, the the message from NEFA is, and from Philip Nolan was, antigen tests are like snake oil and comments from, the, from our minister w- was that if you do an antigen test, it's negative, you need a PCR. You do an antigen test, it's positive, you need a PCR. And the rest of the world was laughed at that because antigen tests over the last six months have proven to be of value in many different situations. So two months later, all of a sudden, antigen tests are the best things since sliced bread. So, so absolutely, I do agree antigen tests have a role. It's taken us a long time to get to that point And I I think that is the message. Proactively, other countries and societies have been using antigen tests for the last six, 12 months as part of the solution, a package of prevention measures. We're now debating it and thinking about it and we don't have a good system set up for the antigen test, for example, you should be able to get an antigen test right away, not post it out in the mail, because two, three days later, when the results are come yeah. back, you've lost the benefit of it.
1: Yeah, I think people were wondering why you have to wait for it to come in the post. Why can't you just pick one up free somewhere? Make it quick and make it easy.
3: Well, I think normally when somebody's at close contact, um, there's a couple of days before they would take a test, often in those instances, anyway, according to the advice. Um, but so what been, they do stay home in the meantime,
1: been, I'm, I'm talking but, about things that are really practical for people yeah. now, as we reopen, if they're asymptomatic, that they, they should have to wait a couple of days before they get a test in the post. Are there easier ways of doing this?
3: Well, I think the reason it's been done that way is because it's regarded as a practical and organized way to do it, to get it directly to the person who actually needs it. Um, but listen, there has been different advice, Jack. Undoubtedly, in rela- and discussions has been well debated over the course of the last year. And the reason it wasn't adopted in a more widespread basis, as you know at the start, was because of the uh, the, the, the medical advice, public health advice okay. we got at the time. I know there was different views among public health professionals on it, but the considered advice through NEFIT was uh, was that it wasn't appropriate at that time. I was one of the first to actually introduce it um, to, to meat processing factories um, for oh, use of antigen of testing there and it proved to be helpful in that regard. Um, but I, I think the general backdrop was the concern coming from public health was that because it's not as effective as the PCR test, that it could lead to people engaging in behaviour in the belief that they were... that, that, that they were as, they, as
1: we keep so, being told, are engaging so, in that behaviour anyway because, now.
3: Because that's, and, and because we're in that space now where people are engaging in that behaviour and because of the vaccination backdrop, we have reopened society. The advice now is that actually there is a useful purpose for it there to actually enhance safety okay. and, and want, prevent infection. I want to infection. ask
1: about booster vaccines. Uh, because they have been announced for healthcare workers. Healthcare workers are saying we should have got these weeks ago. That's another thing that could have been planned. It's only coming on stream now when we're hitting sort of 4,000 infections a day.
3: Well, it, it was very uh, deeply considered. Of course, right throughout this process, we have taken the advice of the National Immunisation Advisory Committee, which is a committee of the foremost professionals in the country on this issue. To advise us. I think they have advised us very well throughout this process. We have operated one of the, the most effective vaccination programmes across Europe, um, and uh, again, we have been guided by we've been guided by the now and. As of this week, that process is starting. The HSE has the yeah. capacity to. Other vaccinate. countries, though, have
1: done it and have rolled it out quicker and I, 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 have seen I, I, that booster I, I, vaccines work. I, I take your, I, your uh, point,
3: but listen, um, I mean, politicians are not the expert on this, Claire. Okay. And we've been Here's invited by a group, actually, it. who have advised so, us but, very but, well throughout this process.
4: I think we're, we're top happy with bureaucrats and underrepresented with experts. And I, I just think that a national emergency group needs to operate in an emergency way and come up with quick answers. The whole, I, I personally disagree with the, the current system. Neffet is not an expert advisory group. There are a bunch of HIV and Department of Health people. They, if they feel appropriate, they ask the expert advisory group for advice. They ask NIAC, the, advi- the, the vaccine group for advice. The time delay in that whole process, it takes months. And, and I think we knew months ago, they knew in the UK. They knew in in, in Israel that we needed booster vaccinations. And it's taken us till the last week to do it. This is the kind of stuff that should been planned six months ago. We're reacting now, you know. I, I, to, don't,
3: I don't agree with that, Jack. Well, I mean, well you I, may I not agree, the, but, the, the I, booster, the, I, but I'm on the front line the, as a clinician. You may be, and, but the, the
4: booster's... And, and, and I, I get a, my last vaccine in January and I have data and I, I, I look at the scientific data every day. I wish... Yeah, I, it doesn't seem like... Neffa is looking at the data. And okay. I'm now 10 months down the way and I haven't got a booster vaccination and I'm on the front line every day. And my vaccine immunity is waning. That's what the science says. That's okay, where the studies stay. Yeah, but you're, you're saying
3: that six months and six months ago we should have known what the situation would have been with the booster. We, we knew it, in I think July. Ev- we knew in evidence, July. I think and that evidence now has been emerging over recent o- over recent yeah. weeks. But the one point I would make is because of the structure we have in place, the capacity is there to vaccinate seven hundred thousand people a week now. And now that that decision is made, it is rapidly evolving okay. and being rolled out to ensure that everybody can get that booster. And let's not forget uh, that, that, that uh, um, over-80s over have already had their, their third yes. boost. and you are Those going down right? through and, the roof. And how many boosters have we, we given? to you know, oppressed over the age of 65 have also yes. a okay. majority received it. And we're now moved this week into the 60 to 80 age group.
1: OK, well, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Charlie McConnell, Oak McCarthy and Professor Jack Lambert. Coming up next, we'll take you to Australia. This incredible story as a missing four-year-old girl is found safe after nearly three weeks. Welcome back. Now to a happy ending to a story which is every parent's nightmare. A four-year-old girl disappeared 18 days ago in Western Australia, leading to a frantic search. Yesterday, she was found safe and well in a locked house 50 kilometers away from where she disappeared. Police say when they found the little girl, she said, my name is Cleo.
2: Certainly looked like Cleo. I wanted to be absolutely sure it was her, so I said, what's your name? And She didn't answer, and I said, what's your name? Um, She didn't answer again. So I asked her a third time and then she looked and looked at me and she said, My name's Cleo and it was um, and that was it. The uh, officer I was with, Detective Sergeant Hutchinson, um who is the family liaison officer, um, called uh, Cleo's parents and said, We've got someone here that wants to speak to you And it was um, you know, a wonderful feeling to be able to, to make that call.
1: Unbelievable story. Well, joining me now from Melbourne is Holly Hales, a journalist with News Corp Australia. Holly, thanks for joining us uh, there. This morning, your time, of course. Um, tell us about this story. It's really incredible. like Not just big news there, but globally. Um, such a rare outcome to a, a, what could have been a terribly tragic
5: story. Definitely. I think this is the good news story everyone needs. It's kind of what we were all hoping for, but no one really expected. Um, So little Cleo Smith went missing in Western Australia about three weeks ago now. And just for context, the town Carnarvon is about nine and a half hours north of Perth and Perth is about five hour flight from like the major East Coast cities. So it was really in the middle of in the middle of the desert, like it just so remote and everyone was confused as to how, how, what, what happened? How could it happen? And it's just the most amazing ending for this little girl to now be home with her parents. Uh, and that the, the reason the
1: suspect was apprehended and, and Cleo was found was a, a tip-off from locals, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, I think um, from all the footage I've seen, it really shows how much everyone in the town was engaged in this story, really, really, really wanted her home. And thankfully, at the end of, at the, end of the day, all of them coming together has meant that she's now back with her parents.
1: And what do we know about how Cleo is doing? Because the picture that we've seen that was around the world with her in hospital, but looking fairly happy, and um, looking in, in good condition. How is she?
5: I think that's kind of the general consensus. I think we've seen the photo. We've seen her mom grab onto little Cleo's foot, and I think it looks like she's never going to let her go again. Obviously, we don't know the full extent as to what happened during those 18 days when she was um, not at home. And um, how much we'll know, I guess it remains to be seen, but it's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people across Australia to see little Cleo smiling in a hospital bed. And we can just hope that she's got she's well on her way to um, recovery. And um, I guess it starts now that she's back.
1: What do we know about this 36-year-old suspect that's in custody?
5: Well, not a lot yet. So he was only arrested yesterday, I believe. And um, he hasn't really been named in Australia. We don't know, I guess, a lot about him or even a lot about the circumstances in which he was taken. But um, I, re- I think those details will come out in the next few weeks. And um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see.
1: OK, well, Holly, another big story that will affect an awful lot of people here in Ireland is Australia opening its borders again. Uh, what's happened and who can now come in
5: and who can leave So for Australian um, residents and um, citizens, they can kind of freely come back and forth without doing the dreaded hotel quarantine. But there's not too much good news for tourists or um, extended family or friends who want to visit people in Australia. Um, Maybe next year, we're not really sure because this um, border opening for even Australian citizens was pretty unexpected. Um, So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what it means for um, Irish tourists. We really want you, we really want tourists back. We really want backpackers back. But um, I think next year might be the the year of figuring these things out and kind of getting back to a sense of normality with the border situation. So it's good for if you're an, uh, an Irish person who's a citizen living in Australia and maybe you could go home to Ireland for Christmas, that would be amazing for so many people. But for temporary visa holders, there's just not much reprieve yet. And there's kind of a bit of angst in the community over here about that.
1: Okay, Holly Hales, joining us from Melbourne uh, this morning, your time and, and with us tonight. Thank you uh, so much for that. Now, someone affected by those border closures was Connor Nash, an Australian rules footballer for the Hawthorne Club just outside Melbourne. He joins me here in studio because, Connor, you're playing over in Melbourne, but you're from Meath and you're back home now. Tell us when you got the chance to come back and what it's been like.
2: Yeah, it's been great. I'm home about three weeks now. Um, I kind of took a calculated risk, I suppose, coming home as I am a temporary resident out there, Um, but I got my permanent residency application in about a month ago, which should help me getting back out there in January. So, um, yeah, it was a big shock when I did arrive into the airport here in Dublin. I was very lucky, I suppose, to get the chance to come home and... um, Yeah, I wasn't too sure of one It's something,
1: you know, that seemed to be so emotionally loaded for so many people, especially in Australia, because many people, like many Irish over there, they're so far away from home anyway. And then to be prevented from leaving for two years, that was really difficult for people. For you, that time spent away from family, were you constantly waiting to see when there would be news because they kept putting back the date or not setting it in stone as to when you actually may be able to leave?
2: Yeah, it was and I, I suppose you kind of gave up hope in, in after a while, after a number of months. Um, I suppose this time last year I was hoping to come home when the off-season happened and it didn't happen. So it was just kind of, yeah, right, we'll take stock and, and just go again for another year um, and see what happens. But uh, I was lucky, I suppose, I did have some, some distant family over there and, and my, my girlfriend Grace over there as well. So, um, But yeah, to finally get the chance to come home, it's been a big two years. and. A lot has gone on, I suppose, like we only, it was only six weeks ago, I think we had an earthquake in Melbourne, so everything has happened.
1: Yeah, and I'd say when you came home, you found so much had changed too. It's two years since you'd seen your family. Um, And did this country feel like a different place? Because, you know, we've all gone through the restrictions. Uh, Life in Melbourne must've seemed very different to life back here, given how we've kind of approached the pandemic compared to there.
2: Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, I left Australia in lockdown pretty much, so, that was I think our sixth lockdown. So to come back to Ireland where I could actually walk into a pub, ball be seated at a table, it was it was it was pretty good. Um but yeah, I mean the restrictions in, in Oz have been have been very difficult the last while as they have everywhere else. But um yeah, coming back to see family was was different, all right. Um I have a brother who's twenty and he's two years of college done now in those two years. I have a younger sister, Lauren, who's um 16 now so it's very different to a 14 year old so it was very it's very different when I last left them.
1: Uh, do, do you feel when you've come home were you getting pressure when you're over there from family from your mom saying you know when you come home will you stay home?
2: No I didn't in fairness to them they said look we'll see you when we see you and um, I suppose without FaceTime I don't know how we would have survived we've had that many calls over the last two years but um, they said look we'll leave it up to you and when, when the time is right and when you feel comfortable with, taking that little bit of risk and getting home, then we'll certainly welcome you home, so.
1: And what's it like as a professional sports player over there? Because you would have gone and played, I presume, outside of Melbourne. And then because of these rolling lockdowns, it it would have affected whether or not you could get back.
2: Yeah, we were constantly um, chasing around and kind of moving to each different state where it was free. Um, I mean, 2020, we spent three months outside of Melbourne in these hubs. Um, away from partners and, and family over there. So I think I stayed in uh, Sydney for three weeks, Perth for two weeks, and then Adelaide for six weeks in 2020. And then this year was disrupted again. Um, like we had fly in, um, fly out on the same day of a game, which was very different. Um, some of the older boys who are getting on a bit were complaining a bit. But um, I mean, the last two years have just has just been completely different. Um, from the first three years I spent out there. So
1: when you went and you went to play a match, you would have had no idea that wherever you were playing that match, you were going to stay there then for the next six weeks.
2: Yeah, I Did they set
1: up temporary accommodation? Like, how did it work? These these border closures seem very extreme.
2: Yeah, well, the AFL, the and fairness, them, did a great job. Like, albeit, we were told in 2020 that we were leaving for three weeks to Sydney and that was it. We were back after 30 days or so. And uh, yeah, 10 weeks later, we were still on the road. So um, they kind of owed the players one there, I suppose, and that we did keep the season going.
1: Okay, and Connor, I know that you were playing with Leinster before you decided to make the move over to Melbourne. I hear that they'd like to hear you back and, and the, the province would like to see you play with them. Would you come back and consider playing uh, rugby back here again or is are you all set up in Australia now?
2: Um, I'm pretty set up there but not things. I kind of take it year to year. Um, I'm contracted next year and we'll see how that goes but I suppose I would love to come back to Ireland at some stage and, and play a bit again if I could but I think uh, the Leinster boys are doing pretty well without me. It's, they're... Just fine.
1: Okay, Connor, thank you so much for joining us in, in studio and welcome home. Um, that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.